0: Hello, and welcome to some derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I'm your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about Mass Combat Homebrew, but before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast.
1: <laughs> we, uh, we like to talk about games. I imagine we're also going to spend a significant portion, uh, not ign- insignificant portion is maybe a better way to put this, uh, talking about our uh, Hell's Rebels Chapter 1, Book 1, Ender, uh oh yeah did, I'm excited to talk about that I've been waiting a long time
0: that happened <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah this is the first cast since uh since we uh since we finished the since big, we
0: closed that chapter the
1: big old the big old dongerino um
0: yeah so uh what were your thoughts about it having run it from then?
1: Uh, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty happy with it, and everything. I want you to know, I have to, I have to explain this to the cast because I need everybody to know. All right, dear listeners, I've been waiting so long uh, to execute on that twist-ish thing and have that ending to the book. Like this is this, you know, this has been basically always been uh, kind of the ending of the book, and. Uh, it's one of those things where I did everything I could to try and, like, underplay it to people. Where I just kind of made it like, oh, you know, like, this is just a dungeon, you know, it's just a normal dungeon. This is just a normal, and we're gonna move on, and we're gonna move forward, and make it so that, you know, uh, it's one of those things that just kind of, uh, like, not, not that it, not that it's a kind of surprise, right? Like, boo, fucking, oh, no, now (laughs) Connor's dead, right? You know, but, (laughs) um... I just uh I wanted to make sure that like I don't know i it's one of those things where you know you, like like plot twists on kind of that level are kind of rarely seen, I feel like uh in in a lot of the games that I guess we have been playing. I can't really think of one in the context of like Mark's games or Nick's games, really um uh so i i was very protective i guess of it and it feels it feels like it feels like a big like lead weight has been like pulled off my chest in getting it out there finally um to which i am uh to which i am happy i don't know i was happy i was happy with the uh i was happy with the session itself i thought that uh i thought that we we hit our we hit our marks so to speak
0: yeah no i agree i uh what would you have done if, like, we just wouldn't deal with the with the, with the half-devil?
1: Oh, man, do I want to say this? Okay, so... If you don't want
0: to tell me, don't, but... No,
1: so no I mean, you know, this is the opposite of the problem we had last time. Uh, if you had not dealt with the devil, it would have been worse. Um, the... Because you... Uh, so, from a kind of structural standpoint... I've always known that you guys were going to end up with the Dreamweaver, right? I had to figure out a way. I had to have Gondor die in order for the Dreamweaver to pass, right? Um, And the plan was, if you refused to deal with Nox, there wasn't going to be a – there wasn't going to be, like – you know, like oh, and she has a note on her that directs you kind of to to the to the warehouse, right? The, the 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 purpose of which is that if you had chosen to do like a really hardcore search of the area, there was no other way to figure out where this warehouse with the book was besides dealing with her, um, and at the same time. Uh, you definitely could have, you know, you definitely could have just said, you know what, this book just isn't that important to me, right? And then you could have off to Nox. And that would have been the quote unquote wrong choice, because what would have happened is off screen, uh, Tanrick and the Hell Knights would have raided the Lucky. No, uh, no uh, what is it? What's the. The Long Roads. Uh, the Long Roads coffee house. Killed. And then killed Gondor in the raid and killed a random one of the other NPCs of your group, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Also, also it's one of those things where it's like I was also really really ready to help you guys out, right? Like if you wanted to go on your own and try and investigate and just like, okay, I, you know, like I know the Tannison, you know, I'm I'm going to try and find this Tannison warehouse or whatever. I was going to be very open to that kind of thing, right? The goal was always to get you into the warehouse so that you could have the moment you know, kind of like with Gondor and Tonric together, right? Uh, but, like, the worst-case scenario that was in the back of my mind was was uh, uh, losing Gondor, uh, the Long Roads, as kind of a safe house, and one of the, uh, kind of one of the other NPCs.
0: Okay. Huh. Interesting. No, it's just, like, it's just, I, I, I don't know. I mean... I've played in your games enough times that like the moment Tonric was gonna kill Gondar, I was like you know it was a good moment, but I couldn't help roll my eyes like you know the the, the picture of Optimus Prime playing with the toy version of himself this is kind of <laughs> what I imagined
1: That's fair. I think that's uh, uh I so you know it's funny because before I really I, before I kind of settled on the idea of uh, having Tonric be a like a fixture. He was he was in the campaign in a different way, and then I basically read the second book in House of Rebels, and I was like, "Oh wait, this is so stupid. He has to be this Hell Knight kind of thing." Um, whereas uh, this was originally scripted so that Gondor was just getting killed by uh, the other, like the other Hell Knight guy that the book has, Oct- Octavio Sabinus or whatever. Um, Does
0: that character not exist in this? In this yeah, version? this character.
1: Yeah, this character has basically just been subsumed by. Uh, you know, I I honestly don't like. Uh you know this is kind of one of my complaints about the book Octavio doesn't have uh he just kind of always hates Barsalithrune and never works with Barsalithrune and so Barsalithrune just decides fuck you Octavio Sabinus, in for no like for no reason right I wanted uh, I wanted to it, it, it like it really kind of fit everything in place because it fit the um it it also fit why Tonric swaps, right? Because, you know, you I don't mind spoiling this, you're going to figure this out when you talk to Johan in 5 seconds. The whole point of going after Gondor from Barzilai's perspective was to get the Dreamweaver, right? That's what he's been after. Right. Uh and so when when Tonric was like, "Well, you know, I don't give a shit, right? I'm not here for, I'm not here to be Barzilai Thrun's lapdog. I'm here because you're you are, you know, Specifically, posing a threat to the people of this, uh, you know, the people of this province whom I have sworn to protect, kind of thing. And so, him coming back without the book, without the Dreamweaver, um, is, is the impetus, uh, for, for uh, Tanric being kind of named a traitor and being killed. Um, and so that was it, it, it kind of everything like fell into place from that perspective. Um, in general. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, to be honest, I was uh, I was a little up in the air. Original, like the original way that I had, I- I've been going back and forth about like the kind of the whole ending bit. Um, originally, it ended the way that we did it, kind of where the very last thing that you guys see is, uh, you know, Tanric is dead. Johan wants you to help resurrect him, um, but I also kind of think that that also kind of kills the moment a little bit. Which I didn't know, like, I, I, I went back and forth in, in it, and I was just like, fuck it, and I kind of went forward anyway. Um, I don't really know if it would have been better to kind of let that sit for a week or two, and then the first thing you see in book two is like, okay, you know, hit the ground running kind of thing. I
0: mean, it felt very much like the end of a season of television. You know, it's like, and here is the cliffhanger to to bring you back to season two. Yeah, um, and then,
1: yeah. I mean, it's one of those. Yeah, I think that's true. One of those is kind of like the movie ending of like, ah, oh, like this guy sacrificed himself so that the rebellion could kind of live on, and the other one is the t- the TV ending where you have the the hook, the cliffhanger, the hook into the next season. I I totally agree with that.
0: That, or or, or it's the the post credits the post credits moment. Uh, is is what you did? It, it is this kind of Johan point? It's like you know. Samuel L. Johan shows up and is like, I'm assembling a team of Resurrectors um, for the Avengers in two months or whatever. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, it's funny because my original plan for kind of how the book went didn't necessarily come to fruition. Um, one of the things I think I kind of lightly regret is that I didn't integrate gonder into you guys a little bit more like from an emotional perspective almost but then again i also kind of don't really know that that would have been the most successful thing for me to do anyway because i also want to stay away from my own personal you know bad habit of injecting super powerful npcs and and knocking the wind out of the np of the players at every turn so it was one of those things where i kind of felt caught between like i want the players to care about you know i want the players to care about this guy right he's the guy that basically started the whole rebellion in the first place and uh i don't want him to overshadow the stuff that they're accomplishing
0: um also i would con- uh, i would congratulate you on the nice uh misdirect in i guess two podcasts ago where you were like yeah the only character that's really powerful in the pc's is going to be Gondor." <laughs> That's what I was talking about. That's what I was talking about when I was like working really hard to like to
1: to like really misdirect you guys. Because um, the other thing is, you know, it's one of those. Uh, it's also kind of like a deep water moment, a bit um, for you know. You know how I complain. You know, this is like a movie thing. You know how I kind of complain about. Um, Captain America: The First Avenger, where the Red Skull does nothing but lose. I, wa- I. This was also one of those moments where I was like, "Yeah, okay, we have to give." It not, not. You know, it's not a, it's not a game ending, right? This isn't a mortal wound, right? The rebels are going to recover. They're going to get their their shit back together, right? But this is kind of one of those things where, um, uh, you know, I did want, I did want Barzla to have his win. I wanted him to kind of outsmart you guys, um, and you know, like. I think it's a little cheap uh, to a certain extent, but I really like the idea of, you know, having Knox this contract, you know, the the mechanics of him purposefully misleading Knox, right? Because he knows about her, you know, like in order to... Mislead you guys. I loved that idea. I thought that was uh, because you know, like I, I definitely wanted to get a little bit of the uh, you know, like making the deal with the the devil kind of thing in there, but I didn't want to do the cop out where it's like, oh well, you know, you didn't specify which book, so she tells you about a book in Galt. It's like no, that would have been super. La- you know, that would have been lame, right? The yeah. kind of the kind of tricks of, um, you know, Barzilai is a master. You know, like look, Barzilai is is he's an Esmodian and he's he's from house through he's been dealing with devils way longer than any of you guys have you know what i mean and so you might think that you're getting what but like not like he's got that shit down kind of thing i, I really like that that was uh that was something i could reinforce with the contract stuff
0: okay yeah no i i i, I actually enjoyed the encounter with nox did we throw you off at all with the third question
1: yeah I didn't expect that one uh, but it worked out because it allowed me to you know so obviously this thing um with cassius Vasquez uh, yeah the the captain the pirate captain coming into Kintargo. this is you know it, it just allowed me to plug stuff for book two that that is coming down the pike um, in a super easy organic way um you know the other the the only way so what happened? Otherwise, is uh, Taylor gets a tip-off, basically, that's like, oh, well, Cassius Vasquez is coming, and then it causes all this drama because he's obviously Mateo's brother kind of thing. Um, And so now I get to kind of front-load that stuff so it doesn't just, like, kind of come out of the – there's, like, a logical uh, entrance point for that information uh, from, like, a foreshadowing perspective rather than just, like, you know, here's – a new bad guy that you guys have to worry about kind of thing, uh, which I definitely – which I definitely liked. Uh, to be honest, I kind of don't remember – that was the one that I, that I, that I liked most. I kind of don't remember the specifics of – oh, and then I got to tell you about, um, uh, you know, like at least getting to part of barzilai's plan, right? Like starting to sow the seeds of that information because, you know – While I definitely love the fake out with the book and everything like that, uh, the kind of promise at the end of it was that you would figure out what Barzlieth Rune is looking to accomplish in Kintargo. And based on, you know, as written, you actually don't get any information on what he's looking to accomplish. You still don't know why he wants the Dreamweaver. You don't know, uh, you know, any of this other kind of stuff. And so that was a neat way for me to sew, um, you know, a couple of the little bits. That will kind of come together as we progress into books two, three, and four to explain. Okay, Barzelay definitely has a grand plan. He definitely has a master plan. He's really looking to accomplish something. Here is that stuff, and this is all the and this is yeah, this is how the pieces from book one plug into that equation. Um, I I I I was uh, yeah, I was down for that.
0: Yeah, no, I I was, was, that was the moment where I was like, we can ask a broad question that, like, could potentially give us a lot of information. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I... What else did I think of that dungeon? I... It felt kind of like the, the actual encounter parts of the dungeon were kind of, like, not super... I mean, part of this, too, is, is I, I always have to keep reminding myself that, like, I'm not doing a lot, usually. But, like, I actually felt like... Um, the battle with, with Azranathi was, was a more impactful battle than the battle with Nox.
1: I definitely think that that's true, but I think that's, you know, I'd like, I feel that, but it's also kind of like, this because you guys played the dungeon right. You didn't necessarily play the dungeon right on the top side because it just kind of became a swarmy fest, and that could have happened in the bottom. But you, you know, you went very methodically uh, through. For instance, if you had fought, okay, if you had fought in that room four, the same thing would have happened, right? You would have alerted the people in the next room, and you would have kind of had this big clusterfuck of shroud devils, and here's the loud, and you know all this other stuff. But you compartmentalized it really well, and so I agree with that. But you know, I. Yeah, at the end of the day, that's just on you guys being better at this stuff uh, in in the bottom half than you were in the top half, and that's fine.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's definitely fair. Also, you know,
1: also at the same time, um, a lot of this stuff was as written. Some of it was, you know, obviously Shroud Devils don't actually exist in the... uh, in the real, you know, like, in in the book or whatever, though, there's some other stuff that I cut out because I don't like it. Um, in fact, those Asmodium Paladins also don't exist. I added those specifically because the whole place was just filled with these stupid fucking monks, and I was just like, I gotta get some variety in here. Um,
0: anyway, um, and so, uh, uh, do you run the enemies as written? Because I, I find adventure path enemies to be always maybe, like, 50, maybe that's uh putting numbers on it's gonna be hard, but I always find them to be way too weak for, for my parties.
1: Uh that's that is exactly the well, not the problem, but like kind of the problem. So the the thing is when I was looking at this stuff on paper, these guys have really high attack bonuses, right? So they're actually doing a lot of damage, but their hit points themselves are actually very small, right? You know, like an Asmodean redactor has fifteen hit points, it's one shot from right. you know, from yeah. Rakox, right? Um, a full attack from Tall kills these guys, right? Like you know, there, it, it's just there's a lot uh, there's a lot of ways that you guys can can kill them. So I think um, hypothetically, the it, it would have been better for me to buff their HP, uh, kind of in like the Nick school of thought, where you just give everyone max HP because the party is overtuned. Uh, and I think that's a little bit of where you guys live uh, in, in like from a balance perspective. Yeah. Also, I prepped the dungeon. With the expectation, you know, the dungeon um, was prepped for five people. Oh, and then there's, but but now there's, you know, there's Mark who has an an additional dynamic to it, um, and also Tall is kind of ridiculously strong. Actually, you know, it's funny because uh, it's funny because uh, when the when Enoch one shot the lout, um, that's kind of supposed. That's kind of how Enoch is supposed to work to a certain extent. That kind of that doesn't really get to me um, all that much. but I secretly think that Weirin is kind of one of the stronger members of the party from like a like a pure numbers wise. Like I think if we were to put out, you know, if we were to lump Weirin DPS and Tall DPS together. Um he actually probably did the most DPS through the entire group, but he had more attacks, which means he was a little bit more inconsistent because there were some miss you know, he yeah, missed it- a little bit more often, um and stuff like that. Like, like And it Rikos- wasn't as apparent? Yeah, Ricox you know, Racox is very consistent damage, right? And he you know, he hits these numbers and they're and they're huge, but he's really only making kind of the one big attack. Um Whereas, you know, Weirin is kind of getting, you know the the up the upside to Weirin is he gets four attacks per turn, right? right. Know, one of which is from reach, and they're doing comparable amounts of kind of uh, of damage overall. But like because it's spread out, it doesn't look quite as jarring. Um, I also think that we are in the middle of Rakox's PowerPoint, right? You know, once he gets away from uh, once he gets away from this like level you know like this level four five six area and people start getting iteratives and full attacks become more powerful uh i think he balances uh he balances out and becomes worse
0: yeah we'll see
1: but uh, uh but yeah.
0: yeah well I, I i'm excited for where the campaign is going
1: oh um, i'm so i'm so excited these bonus feats have been a great idea i'm really glad i kind of committed to this for the listeners at home um I, uh, you know, I've, you know, we like to do, you know, anybody who tunes into Rune Lords, right, knows that we like to do, like, artifacts and stuff where you kind of add extra mechanics to the game and everything like that, and I had been toying with the idea to do that, uh, for this, but I don't like the idea of, oh, everyone just happens to find their own, you know, extremely powerful magic item, uh, so what I kind of settled on was the mechanics of those artifacts, right, in, like, scaling Uh, specifically designed mechanics for each player that are just really cool and really interesting for them to deal with would come in the form of these bonus feats that they get when they kind of complete RP goals, right? And like personal storyline kind of stuff. And I've committed very whole hog to that, uh, to like, to this concept. And it has been a, uh, it has been fertile territory, I would say. Oof.
0: Um, I'm definitely excited to come across that. Um... I don't, yeah, I, don't, I actually,
1: I just reworked your feet really hard. You're you're going to be way earlier than you. You are actually going to be kind of at the very back end uh, of books of book two. Um, but now it's basically just going to be right up front. Oof! So. I'm
0: I'm I'm excited because I've I've also got some thoughts about which, what way I'm going to direct Beauregard. But we'll we'll save that for uh, for 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 another time. My my crazy plans that will probably not work. But um. <laughs> 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 um
1: yeah yeah i mean i definitely uh it's you know it's it's a, it takes two to tango i guess uh, all <laughs> 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 oh, right that's your name <laughs> uh it wasn't even an intentional pun kind uh, of
0: puns. yeah i i've heard that joke i have heard every joke to do with the word tango about a billion times as, as yeah, i'm sure yeah, you can imagine I, i'm
1: sorry i don't i don't mean to uh you know i don't mean to do that do it that way but yeah. you get me
0: yeah i do um, otherwise in like, uh, in video games, um, played a bunch of Overwatch, played World of Warcraft for about half an hour. Not sure how I feel about that. Uh, and I played, uh, I played the room, uh, which is a, I think it was originally a mobile game. Um, it's this really nicely done kind of puzzle box simulator. Like there, mm-hmm. there's, there's some overarching story and you have to open up these boxes with various puzzles. So I thought it was a lot of fun. But it was also, like, you know, like, super short. Um, I got it on the Steam sale for, like, a dollar. So I'm not so concerned with the value proposition. I just wish there was more of it, right? Like, you, you ever have this kind of experience where it's like, oh, boy, this was a lot of fun, but now it's over. I wish there could have been just a little bit more of it.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I, I've definitely had that happen to me with uh, with plenty of, like, indie games or whatever. Um, I think, honestly, this is a little bit more on me, than it is on the games themselves, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, some of it is. Um, you know, I'm oriented to longer experiences from games, so sometimes when I get that like four or five hour, you know, you know, even some of the you know like like the ten hour kind of fix or whatever, it feels short because you know, even though I I don't. Like, even though I don't, like, I don't, I haven't paid that much for it because these indie games are, like, five bucks, right? Ten bucks or whatever. It's, you know, all games are games, and so they kind of feel lumped together, and I almost sometimes feel like I'm not getting my money's worth, even though, kind of, by math, I totally am. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I do. Um, but, yeah, I'd recommend The Room to anybody who wants to. To spend an hour or two fucking around with puzzles. Um, did you play any anything interesting this week, Butteroo? Yeah,
1: I played. Uh, I played a couple of different games from the Steam Sale. I got Cities Skylines, which is a Paradox. Uh, Paradox is kind of like swiftly becoming one of my favorite publishers. Uh, Mine
0: too. Them and Devolver Digital are my favorites. But. I
1: like. I, it is. It is nuts to me that they make these games. But uh, so so like uh, as a bit of history, I was always a huge fan uh, of the game SimCity 2000. Um, which I ended I actually played. I I learned of that game in Japan when I was living in Japan as a kid uh because the school I was at had it installed on all of the computers and we used to play it all the time. And it was really you know like we were bad. We didn't quite get it. Um and then in uh uh and then and then I kind of like brought that with me home, almost. Like, the only game, the only video game that I've ever shared with my, like, with my dad, the only game that he and I have ever played together is SimCity 2000, right? Um, so, like, it's got, it's got, like, a very personal, like, I have a, I have, like, a deep, deep abiding connection to that game, and City Skylines is the spiritual successor to that game that I have always wanted. I've, I've dabbled in some of the other SimCity games, um, and none of them have ever kind of hit, uh, the chord that I've always been looking for them to hit. Um and so yes, yeah, so I've been playing uh I've been playing Cities uh Cities Skylines. I also played a little bit of XCOM 2 because all that DLC came out, it was on sale. Um I haven't actually gotten to the DLC bits because I'm just kind of churning my way through the opening story bullshit uh in order to get there. Um so you know. The, that that's the that's the big stuff that I've been playing Hearthstone, Overwatch.
0: Yeah, I think the other big thing is the the competitive for Overwatch which we've got a bunch of time oh, in right, at this yeah, point. right, yeah,
1: yeah, the competitive mode came out. Yeah, uh yeah, I've played uh I've played a bunch of competitive for Overwatch. I think it's good, not great. It's a lot like, you know, League of Legends ranks, obviously. Um I don't know. I don't really have. I don't really have anything too specific to say about it.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the only thing we could really talk about. And I don't know if you want to do this now or save it for a separate cast. Is the uh, is the issue of uh, levers and then their effect on the game?
1: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. See, in a weird way, I almost kind of don't care about that stuff from like a game design perspective because I kind of don't really. It is technically, but it's not something like you know.
0: I mean, it's an integral part for like games as sport, right? Like,
1: sure, sure. No, no, no. But I'm just saying, like, it's not. It's not like. It's, like, flashy, right? It's not, like, it's not, this isn't the kind of stuff I, like, care about, right? If you want to get me on board for, like, one hero, two hero lim, you know, like, hero limits, all that kind of stuff, uh, maybe I'm, you know, like, maybe I'm down because I think there's, uh, you know, there's, like, there's interesting stuff from kind of, like, a comp perspective and I think the trade-offs are neat and all that kind of stuff. But to me, this Lever stuff is, like, it is this weird intersection between, like, game design, game theory, right, and, like. UI... UX, I guess you would call that. User, user experience. experience, yeah. Um, uh, that, you know, I care I care a lot about game design. I could really give a shit about uh, UX from, like, a, I don't
0: know. Yeah, I, I, the other part of it, too, is that it's also a lot of, like, uh, you know, like, like, like I, I'm going to call it tar wrangling. Just, like, get, getting, getting around, like, not... So... The only thing that I care about this, I'm just gonna say it because you obviously you, you seem like you don't have a ton of, vest in this, is that I don't like rewarding shitty people for doing shitty things, and I think that when you, when you essentially, like uh, affect the the outcome of the game, based on shitty people doing shitty things, you empower them to do shitty things, and I think that's a misstep on Blizzard's part. Um, the folks at home don't know, levers cause rewards to be lessened and penalties to be lessened, and I think that's a terrible, terrible thing.
1: Yeah, uh, something that occurred to me after we had had, like a, we had had a huge long argument about this, something that had occurred to me was that perhaps it's a necessary evil because of the kind of matchmaking system needing to be like net neutral, so to speak. Um, I don't know if this is the case. I don't really kind of know how the back end of some of these systems works, right? But, like, you know, if I'm, if I'm of equal rating to the enemy team or whatever, um, and I gain, let's say I gain cumulatively, like, 100 points per player, so I gain 600 points. Maybe the system needs the enemy team to lose exactly 600 points in order to kind of keep the ranked system, uh constructed properly i i don't i I have no idea if that's the case or not right i really i i don't know uh if that's how it should uh or or it kind of is supposed to work uh but it's something that i hadn't quite considered that maybe is uh maybe is kind of the reasoning behind this stuff
0: i mean i so like i don't know if you you finished reading that conversation but i also think that it's, it's unfortunate but i think the losing team also needs to lose full points when they have a lever. And i know that that sucks, but otherwise you incentivize people to leave as like a positive thing. Like if 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 you can save your teammates from from losing xp by dropping and if you can do that um uh it, what was what was the second part of this? And if you could do that and you feel like like that's like the responsible thing for you to do, right? Like let's say you have a really shitty game and you're like man, I'm causing my friends to lose points because I'm being a shitter. Like, that incentivizes that person to drop, and you can't have that. Like, you, you need to have that be power neutral when that happens. And it, it, it sucks, but I really think that you need to have full rewards and full penalties on levers.
1: Yeah, I. you know, it's funny because, you know, we obviously compare this to League a lot. Um, I don't really know... The specifics of how the lever system works in League of Legends, but I'm pretty sure that it does work that way. And I kinda think I do kind of agree. I just, I don't know. It's one of those things where I understand the, you know, like kind of the counter argument is that, you know, levers can, you know, levers can only leave like once or twice and they're banned from competitive kind of thing, right? And so you could make an argument that says that like, okay, if you're positively incentivized in this one place, but extremely negatively incentivized in this other place, right? You know, the net incentive is still always going to be kind of negative. I think that's false for a lot of reasons, honestly. But um, I think that's kind of like the argument to be made.
0: Um, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I really don't. Uh... The, the thing that bothers me the most is that this is – they have said that they won't do loss-prevented type systems because it encourages people to leave. Mm-hmm. And like this, this is just an inconsistent stance. If to to, to like reduce penalty or reduce the loss penalty for someone who has somebody leave, because it, it's just a lesser version of the same exact thing. If that makes sense.
1: No, definitely. I also think a part of it is is rough because quick play um, doesn't punish levers. Um, I think a benefit that League of Legends has in this scenario is that even if I'm playing normals and I leave the game. You know, like, I'm still a fucking, you know, I'm still a lever. I, you know, I can't queue up for new game, right? You know, I can't do any of that kind of stuff. And so when when someone's making a jump from normals to ranked in League, the lever buster system is consistent between both modes, which is not the case in Overwatch. In right. fact, I, I find it to be very aggressively not the case in Overwatch, right? Like, people leave and join... Uh, kind of mid match all the time in quick play,
0: um, um, and I think that's actually a, a consequence. Like that, that's like where a lot of FPSs have come from. Like that, that's yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: no, one hundred percent. Yeah, uh, I don't. Know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. like a
0: weird genre problem.
1: It, it totally. It yep. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, but uh, you know, we can we can get into the consistencies, uh, I suppose, of their lever system more in depth later. I suppose, Uh, let's talk about Mass Combat.
0: Mass Combat, yes. Mass
1: Combat. Have you read through, you know, you've read through the rules as I've posted them or whatever? I
0: have, I have. And I'm sure you want to do a general overview, but most of my thoughts are kind of specific. So why don't don't you lead this conversation? So
1: from a general overview point, right, uh, I talked about this on the cast. I'm not going to re-hash everything. Mass Combat is coming up in Hell's Rebels. I've been thinking about this system, and so I'm kind of toying with rules. The funny part is, is that... um, I kind of almost got sidetracked from mass combat by doing these bonus feats, right? Like I was really writing this mass combat rave and I rushed out these rules and I got through them all kind of like one or two days. I like had it in my brain and I, and I had to get it out and then I immediately switched focus to bonus feats. Um, and then I kind of returned. This is like two or three days later from like an iterative point. And I'm like, and I'm looking at this stuff. I'm just like, Oh man, I really don't like some of how this works. Um, but I decided not to make any changes because I'd rather talk through these kinds of changes uh, on the cast itself, uh, rather than um, I'd rather you know I'd rather talk through these kinds of changes on the cast itself than uh, go into you know like like kind of like a hyper changing boat. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so Mass Combat, you know, it's played on a square grid. Um, generally I have speaking, an issue with that.
0: I think it should be played on hexes.
1: Yeah. I, uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just... look <laughs> at we'll get there. It's, <laughs> play, it's played on a square grid. Um, the, the units kind of look like those battlefield overview maps where each one is kind of like a big rectangular block. Uh, they, you know, certain units... You know, encompass different areas or whatever. They have a front line, uh, two flanks, and a back line. If you attack someone in their flanks, they take extra damage, kind of thing. Um, the blocks move around in very, like, purposefully, kind of clumsy ways. Um,. Each block gets uh, an attack action and, uh, like, a move action on their move action. They can spend kind of these movement points to, you know, they can march forward. They can turn kind of 45 degrees. They can shift to one side or the other. Uh, they can flop around their front side and their back side, right, that kind of stuff. Um, and then there are a couple of different specific units. Um Oh and then uh, so and then the attack actions are you know a normal attack is a unit attacks an enemy in its range right it just deals some damage dice um a unit can choose to brace against an incoming attack in order to reduce that damage by 50% um and then a unit can kind of disengage from another unit which allows them to you know kind of like get out of a fight that they might otherwise be uh they might otherwise be losing um some other pieces to this mechanics units have a certain amount of armor that that acts more as dr rather than ac um you know uh they also u- units have armor but they also have armor piercing so i roll an armor piercing roll if i succeed on my armor piercing roll by beating the enemy's armor um i ignore their armor for that instance of you know that instance of damage um units have relatively high uh, hit points and damage dice values right a hundred ish hit points is pretty normal and uh, they all do multiple D, you know, whatever's kind of uh, as their stuff. But anyway, uh, just a rundown of the specific units. We've got the Sentinel, which is sword and board, basically. High HP, high armor, low damage. Um, they're very sticky. They deal a lot of damage in kind of the opp- the attack of opportunity, uh, which is just called opportunity attacks. Um and uh, they can, uh, you know, they can really tank up in a very, very, like, hardcore way. Um, you have the Centurion, which are, you know, they carry great weapons. They carry these two-handers. Um, they are, uh, you know, they're good at fighting against kind of armor. They're... they're, they're good at armor piercing and stuff like this uh and they can push units all around the map you have skirmishers lightly armored super mobile forces uh that typically are dual wielding um they can move through enemy squares and units uh that they can't end uh their their uh they can't end their movement on top of a unit or whatever um and they're really best at uh they're really best at kind of exploiting, you know, flanks and setting up flanks for your team. Uh, cavalry, which are, you know, they first of all, they never provoke opportunity attacks. Second of all, they actually kind of don't do all that much damage while in melee, but if they can set up a charge where they just, like, charge in a straight line uh, and crash into an enemy unit, they do bonkers damage. Uh, so that's kind of how cavalry are used. And then uh, you've got marksmen, you know, missile units they can attack from... um three units away and um uh they can also kind of like double their range long you know they're their marksmen it makes sense mages uh are kind of weird because they gain different effects based on their uh kind of like what quote-unquote spell they have equipped Right. But generally speaking, they are an alternate range unit that also provides a lot of customizable utility. Uh, and then, the you know, the support is a melee utility unit, uh, you know, made of guys like, you know, uh, typically arcane spell or divine spellcasters like clerics or whatever. They buff allies and, uh, you know, they buff allies and they restore hit points and stuff like that. And then the last system is... And from a macro setting, you can upgrade your units in a couple of different ways, right? If you give, uh, you know, if you give these units short spears, they are better versus cavalry, right? If you give them battle axes, they do better armor-piercing damage. So if you give them tower shields, right, they, you know, they are uh, uh, they're much tankier uh, kind of thing. You can also change what classes, um They are, right, so if you make up a group of Sentinels that is built entirely or mostly of Paladins, they behave differently than a group that's mostly Barbarians kind of thing. And this goes all the way down. Um, We're going to have these notes kind of posted in the same way that the Warlord was, which is, you know, here's some notes kind of as written, and then there's going to be a more updated version, um, which we will see after the cast. Anyway, so now that I've done as brief a rundown as I possibly could – how uh, how do you uh, how do you feel?
0: Hex grid. Let's talk
1: about the hex grid. I guess
0: that that was a joke. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Oh, Okay. Uh, actually
1: <laughs> I went back and forth on this a little bit, um, but uh,
0: I I think square is better just to keep consistent with the way we play regular combat.
1: I think that's that's possibly fair. I, originally, I had thought of a system where you know each each unit was. Comp- comprised of different kind of units in the area and so movement was actually moving individually you know like they all had to be connected right um oh like warcraft
0: could, st- or warhammer style rather
1: yeah 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 um but like they like you know my unit of sentinels all had to be one one unit, right? They all had, it had to be congruous from one end to the other. They couldn't break off and have one hex, you know, be a part of it or whatever. Um, but I realized that that system was pretty dumb because uh, it was impossible to kind of define frontline, backline back line, flanks, uh, and it just incent it would it would incentivize people to make really long, wide chains. You know what I mean? Like if you give eight hexes to a sentinel unit, the best way to use that unit is to is to spread it out kind of eight by one uh, right which I th- I just don't think is uh, I just don't think is good or cool um,
0: so, so the area value is that like like, like yeah. that, that I assume is how much how much space the unit takes up yeah it's how yeah. much space
1: the unit takes up uh, in general it's you know like for the eight area that's four by two um, okay.
0: And for the four, it's two by two.
1: Yeah, and for the four, it's it's two by two. I think there's a couple six, like the cavalrys. That's three by two, right? Um, uh, Stuff like that. But yeah, in general, that is how uh, that is how the area is supposed to work.
0: Okay, I was gonna kind of go 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 straight straight down this because. All right, let's do it. All right, so last comments by the square grid. We did that. Um, Armies consist of varied numbers of units. Yeah, that's like fine. Um, Stats are good. Um, I asked my question about that. Oh, really? Uh,
1: you, think, you think stats are okay? I,
0: I think things should have stats. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. That I, I have yeah. some
1: major problems with the stats. Uh, oh, oh stats yeah, from sure. A, from a from a systems perspective. I,
0: I have some problems with, with, with the stats overall, but I didn't want to address it on this bullet point, which is that units have stats. I'm like, yes, units should have stats. Fair I don't enough. think yeah. they, sh- they should just be like toys that we resolve conflicts with by throwing them at each other and see which ones breaks. Um... But, uh, each unit has one path and one active ability. See, now, I had thought, like, the, my first reading of this, I had thought that your intention with the mages was to have them have multiple equipped spells. Is that, is that in- incorrect?
1: Oh, yeah, no, uh, that was, uh, I had always intended that you swap out spells. So, from uh from a lore perspective, in my mind, this is how mages work. I don't think it makes sense to have a group of 40 guys spamming fire- fireballs, right? You can't get that many Right level, you know how whatever level it's actually quite high level to get them spamming fireballs. But this is something I've talked about a little bit on the cast before, and I feel this way uh, is that like. There aren't, like, great rules for pooling magical resources. If I get 40 level one sorcerers together, hypothetically, you know, like, yeah, they have three level one spells apiece, and that's not very powerful, right? But they can work together to kind of be greater, and they can, you know, they can create fireballs. And so that's, the, that's like, the, the okay. theory, right? Is these, these, this mage unit, this support unit, are trained in rituals that are built to be macro-level uh uh macro level powers right um and you could be, be kind of like trained in more than one of those uh without special special stuff
0: uh, okay i I'm, i i'm going to talk a little bit more about that when we get down to majors because i've got some a little some some thoughts there because I, I think i think mages more than any of the other classes really need to talk about that you need to talk about their variants in order for that class to be fully fleshed up but we'll tackle that when we get to it um on unit's turn, it may take one move and one attack action. They are mutually exclusive and may not be exchanged for one another. Either action may be taken first, followed by the other. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a bad decision, but I kind of want to know why you chose to not let, say, attack actions be, be, be transformed into move actions.
1: Um, my thought is that I don't want... Uh, like, movement needs to be tough. Okay. I, think, I think movement has to be a hard thing to execute on. Um, for instance, if that's the case, right, cavalry become ridiculously powerful as written because they can basically perfectly maneuver themselves um, all the time. Right, but if you restrict that cavalry to, you only get one move action per turn. The maximum number of units you're going to be able to move, right, is like six or whatever the number is, um, offhand or whatever. It decreases their ability to really fine tune how their their movement. You know, they have they have. I th- like in general Pathfinder, right? People generally have a lot of movement to "quote unquote" waste, right? They can maneuver around units pretty well, avoid attacks of opportunity, just kind of by spending extra squares of movement to get in the right position for flanks. Uh, in this system, that cannot be as easy as it is in baseline Pathfinder. It has to be harder. Sure. Um, uh, and so that's that's the reason that that's the case. Also. Um, also, it it uh, there are some actions that are move actions, and you should be able to double up. Like the Sentinel has that one action where it can, um, uh, you know, like well, I guess that actually does isn't a, a huge thing. But you know, I don't want to run into a situation where you know the support can heal itself as a move action, right? And it gets to double up on that, and it's unkillable because every right, turn right. it just double heals itself, kind of thing.
0: That's fair. Um. Okay. Moving on, do, do do stuff that happens with NPC, there's stuff that when you use re zero makes sense. No rolls to hit. Now last time we talked we had talked about doing some like you, you had talked in our course of our discussion, we had talked about doing a, a Warhammer style uh, hit on sixes. Why did you choose to go with the with the with a no attack roll pattern? <clears throat>
1: so I think it's um I think it's kind of important that damage gets dealt every turn. Um which is part of my frustration with my own stat lines later in the later in the thing, but um, um, so what I, I realized what it what appealed to me about the Warhammer system was the consistency, right, of having large dice pools being rolled. Okay. and that and that and then I realized that that was the thing that really bugged me about the old Kingmaker version of these stats, where everything was essentially ish uh, one fifth as powerful right, you know, Sentinels have 30 HP and they deal 1d8 damage, you know, uh, Centurions uh, have 25 HP and they deal 1d12 damage, well, what, there's a lot of variance in 1d12, right, um, when I deal 1 damage, that sucks, and when I deal 12 damage, that, I just decimated, it's overpowered, kind of thing, um, so what I realized is the best way to solve that problem is you just pump the variables, um to To create consistency because forty twelve damage, yeah, the upside there is forty eight damage in a turn, right, but the chances that that's gonna happen is, yeah, it, it, is exceedingly low
0: it bell curves, which is yeah, which is, yeah it, so it, and
1: so yeah that that was kind of the that was the thing that I realized was uh i and I did want rolls to hit, which is why I kind of created this armor armor piercing system, which i don't like very much anymore um but uh uh, like, you know, like, I want it – I I definitely want – I don't want it to just be like, I attack this guy, I roll my damage dice, I pass my turn kind of thing. I think that there needs to be, a, like – there needs to be a certain amount of, like, binary uh, variants where, you know, there are two options and both – and one of them is really impactful and the other one isn't kind of thing, right? And so that's kind of where I came up with this armor system, um, which – I think is like it's like the root of like all of my problems. Okay, we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because yeah. like,
0: I also I, I I was doing some math in my head and some numbers seem to be off, um, but uh, actually, uh, well, that's actually the next thing, armor. So fair enough. Yeah. Why? why don't you, so you've gone over what? It, so the way it works is that. Um, uh damage dealt with the unit's armor value. Each time a unit deals damage, they also roll 1d20 plus their armor piercing value to determine the armor piercing damage. If they beat the enemy unit's armor value, the enemy's armor is negated and the attacker's damage is not reduced. What don't you like about this, now that you are you are open about saying this is the root of all of your
1: the problems? The system itself is kind of, you know, it's tough because I really want this to be like an elegant system. Um... <clears throat> The armor, the armor value, right, that AC value, is simultaneously f- – that, that armor value, it's not actually called AC – is simultaneously functioning both as damage reduction and as its own, like, target to beat. And so stacking armor is, like, ridiculously good. Like, ridiculously good kind of thing. Yeah, um, and that. so I think it's trying – I think a more perfect version of this – um you know it's tough cuz i you know i think that the system is complicated and i think it's too complicated kind of uh basically as written and the armor uh and the armor stuff it's like you know if i have to roll to beat a 17 right and i don't beat the 17 so they reduce my incoming damage by 17 well for some units that's all my damage you know right. what i mean like it, and I was thinking of, and and this is this is a bit of a disconnect between I wrote out the system and then I just kind of, I put an appropriate number for well, how often should you beat a sentinel's armor, right? How often should you beat a centurion's armor, kind of uh, from like an AC perspective, without quite thinking what having fourteen DR on every one of the on every one of the hits actually means. Um, for uh for like for the units individually so it's kind of like it's like both a situation of the the stat line is broken from a systems perspective because of how because of how the numbers want to interact with one another um and the uh the numbers themselves are broken from even the from even the perspective of let's say the system is solid and works, the numbers are bad for that system, um, which I didn't quite realize at the time.
0: Hmm. Okay, yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. Do, do you have any idea how you want to fix it? <sighs> I
1: you know. So the cause the other thing I like about armor and armor piercing is it really allows you to uh you know, for instance, um centurions are I like there being a different between difference between skirmishers and centurions, right? Where skirmishers uh are just kind of good at um They're, they're you're know, like if, a, if you put a unit of Skirmisher – well, see, this isn't even true because of how broken the Centurion passive is. But hypothetically speaking, this is what is supposed to be accomplished, right? Sentinels are, uh, are good against Skirmishers. Skirmishers are good against Centurions. And Centurions are good against Sentinels, right? The, the Centurions have this great armor-piercing damage. They have this passive that hurts you if you have more armor. But it's also broken for other stupid reasons. I um, think it's
0: broken for exactly that reason. Well, so what,
1: you know you know what's funny about it, that I didn't quite think of at the time. The idea is that if I'm a centurion and I beat a sentinel's armor damage, all of a sudden your super high armor value is now a threat to you.
0: Right? That's you, why I th- so, so just so people know what it is. Anytime the centurion pierces an enemy's armor, they deal extra damage equal to that to that unit, equal to that unit's armor value. Right. Um <laughs>
1: So if a Centurion and so Sentinels have a flat 17 armor and they can give themselves a maximum of 23 armor, right? Uh Centurions have a plus 8 armor piercing damage. So if a Centurion rolls well, he's dealing 4d12 damage plus 23 against these against these uh, against these Sentinels. And that's that's actually this is the intended effect, right? But the problem is, is that the the likelihood that a Centurion is actually going to beat that with its raw armor piercing isn't all that good, right? For the most part, the Sentinels are going to be reducing seventeen damage, you know, each time, um, because uh, you know of how of how this stuff you know of how this stuff like works out from like a probabilistic standpoint. Um, you would need what fourteen on a roll. Um, yeah. No, you need more than uh, you would. Uh, you need more than that. You need to get 15 So 75% of the time, a phalanx fighting Sentinel is going to ignore Centurion armor piercing anyway, right? Um, but the problem is if I put my Centurion up against a group of marksmen who have five armor, the Centurion literally beats that armor value every time. So it's just adding flat five armor to them, yeah. to, to each of their, uh, to each of their attacks, right? Um, and this really punishes guys like you know with like middling armor, like cavalry and skirmishers. Skirmishers have eleven armor. Cavalry have eight armor. Um, the centurion beats the cavalry every every time. They have one hundred percent uptime on this. They shred that, uh, and that is definitely not the intended effect. It's really it's just it's just a poorly written. I like it's just poorly written in general.
0: Yeah. I, so so I, I think fundamentally along with that, because this is one of the things that I was going to point out is that I also don't think it's great to. Punish, like I think if you're like if the thing that the person is good at is having high armor, that punishing the armor itself is the wrong way to go about it. I think what you want to do is punish the fact that they are, I guess, a theoretically like less maneuverable. I actually think that the Saturnian should be more mobile than than the sentinel is, um, and and that's how you would get around it. or something something like that, right? Like I, I don't think oh, you punish I don't think you the right way is to punish people for their strengths. It's to it's the it's to drive the knife in their weaknesses. If that makes sense,
1: man, how do I feel about that? That's interesting. It's not something I'd really uh, I'd really necessarily thought of. See, a, a revised passive that I was thinking of for the Centurion was um, their passive reduced kind of enemy armor by some whatever flat amount kind of thing. I think um, that works too. So that, like, you can focus... You know, like, because the the, the problem I, I fear with Sentinels is that they are too tanky and unkillable because they still do 48 damage. And, you know, like, yeah, 48 is a lot less than 4012, um, but not so much less. So you really kind of have to – so there there has to be a way that you can break into that high hit pool plus high DR kind of version of them fighting. And the way to do that to me is by reducing their – is by reducing their armor. You know what I mean? Um, And so in my mind, uh, the Centurion has a passive that says something along the lines of, right, like, you know, if it, if it – you know, like, if the Centurion pierces the enemy armor, they lose – six you know they lose six armor for the rest of you know like for the rest of the turn kind of thing so that you can cut co- you can do like a wombo combo of have your centurion hit and then have a cavalry hit against the weakened armored sentinels kind of thing in order to really chew through that high hit I, point high i actually think thing.
0: i think that's actually a much better way to do it even if you want to do something like you lose either a flat like if you lose a flat value you punish less you could also do something like you lose, like, 50% of your armor or something like that.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that, too. Uh, I think having it scale is, is nice because I – you know, it's one of the – I really don't want the Centurion to punish guys like – you know, like – Centurions are built to be the best kind of, like, infantry, generally speaking. Um, even like even if a Centurion 1v1s against a Skirmisher, hypothetically the Centurion should win that. But they should be very vulnerable to stuff like missile fire, to these cavalry charges, um, to mages. You know, like, these ranged damage to this. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to make sure that they weren't very mobile. Because in my mind, Skirmishers should be the ones who are running around, you know... Sh- the, who are running around taking care of, uh, of, uh, melee units, um, uh, or sorry, missile units of mage units, right? Of the backline guys that you want to kind of protect, uh, and centurions shouldn't have that same, uh, strength.
0: Okay. I think, I think overall you might want to up the number of movement points generally allocate, like you up your movement point scale a little bit. That way you can have a little bit more differentiation. Um, Maybe that's not the greatest, I, like, like I, it just seems to me that, like, the fastest students in the game are Calvary, and they are two squares faster than the, the slowest student in the game. And that doesn't feel as impactful as I think I would want it to, if that makes um, sense.
1: Um, you know, I actually kind of think that might be fair. Well, so, and you know, another half of this is that I also, um... I feel like I also fear, like, base... St- like, this is also from, like, a base stats point of view, right? Uh, but one of, like, the upgrades for cavalry is that they get plus one movement kind of thing. And I think having an upgrade path like that is pretty good. Also, because of the way that movement points interact with... Um, you know, like, a lot of these units have, you know, actions that allow them to burn their movement points on something other than movement, right? Uh, if a centurion – or rather, if a, if a sentinel is sitting in melee combat with somebody, he's burning all of his movement points every turn to gain armor, uh, which I think is a – you know, that's a, that's a good effect, right? Centurions should be, you know, planted stalwart in the ground, kind of, whatever. Um, but the danger with guys like cavalry is I like the tying of movement points to the scaling of their damage on the charge. Um, and I wonder if, you know, let's say, let's say we give everybody a little bit more movement points. We we up everybody's movement points to six and then the cavalry has nine. Well, now they're adding 96 damage on a, on a, like a a super powerful charge. Uh, I don't know. Or 98 rather. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe the better way to handle that is to lower that to like D sixes kind of thing. Um,
0: yeah. the the other thing The other thing is that I was going to say, like, I think you want to keep a lot of the fours at four, but you might want to push the cavalry to eight, and that lets you push the, the skirmishers to like six. Um, and that kind of gives you a little bit more of a field to play with in terms of in terms of differentiating different unit types from each other.
1: I think that might be the best call. I think that might be the best call, though. I'm probably gonna have to nerf charge, uh, in order to uh, in order to get there. Um, you know, I, I'm interested on what what are your like. Hit me with these thoughts that you have for mages.
0: Oh, okay. So, so the thing the thing that kind of hit me with the first thing I saw when looking at it, I saw active arcane Missile salvo. It's like there's no reason ever use no, a normal attack. Like arcane Missile salvo is, is is a strictly better attack. It's not like a you don't burn anything for it. Like, you don't have to trade anything off for it. It's just a better version of your regular attack. Yeah. And so that seems kind of lackluster to me. And then when I came down to the... When I went down to the upgrade section, you have, like, Fireball Salvo, Lightning Bolt, Battery, Mind Twist. And um, they don't say this replaces your active skill like all the other ones did. So that's why I thought oh, that they were all... Yeah, that's
1: just... that's a, that Yeah, it's like a typo kind of sure. thing. Sure. It should say that. They... <clears throat> the, the You know, it's funny because the idea is that there you can also um, – I don't know that I actually put this in there, but it's like in my mind kind of thing. Um, oh, 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 oh. The hex is the, the best example of this. There are other versions uh, besides just raw da- – you know, like the mage is, is a damage class, but you can also make a group of mages that, you know, its active ability is like a teleport spell or something like that. You know what I mean? Where it – it needs to have a basic attack and a weak basic attack, right. mind you, right? And if you kit your mages to be, you know what, fireball salvo, they're gonna just, you know, uh, they, these guys are just more range. They're they're just ranged units like the uh, like the marksmen are, but they have different, you know, whatever, right? That's one way to build your mages. But you can also build your mages um, where you have, um, you know, you can also build your mages so that like they debuff targets. Or they give you this crazy movement or whatever they don't really do buffs because that's kind of more of a support thing um, but uh that that's also like a, a like a viable way to do this.
0: okay, see see no so what I had thought that your design for it was gonna be with something like you get a couple of slots for the mage and they get to choose like a, a spell or two um to kind of fill that idea because I uh, the, the, the advantage to the mage seemed to be. To me, at that, at that point, is, over the, like, the marksman, is, is the diversity and the ability to deal with a couple different situations. Um, But I, I see what you're saying. I, it, it,
1: you-, you know, maybe, the, the, if that's true, I actually do kind of think... I actually do kind of think that that makes a lot of sense. Um... But I think if that's true, you kind of have to nerf some of them down, right? Like, um, yeah. you know, a mage unit that has fireball salvo and hex, hex, and summon nature's allies probably too powerful as written, yeah. and that maybe those need to be uh, maybe those need to be nerfed down a little bit.
0: That or, or or like the the other thought would be something like you could categorize them and be like you get one of you get one offensive and one like kind of sup, like you know utility power, and that that's your mage or something like that. Um,
1: hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, honestly, something I, I I should do for mages, I didn't quite think of this at the time, uh, but I think a lot of these salvo abilities have to have range increases on them. I think three units is a little bit too short. Or actually, it's actually four units for mages. Let me just look this up real quick because I may it have... It is four, it's four. Yeah, so that's eh, actually not so bad. Um, uh, I think, you know, it's one of those things where I think hyper long range... Um, for marksmen, makes a lot of sense. I, I actually just take this back. I think having shorter range for mages uh, is is fine. Yep, yep, this is fine. I, I preempted my own problem by being smart about this, I guess.
0: Okay, so so one thing I did want to kind of bring up about the entire system is we, we talked last week, or two weeks ago at this point, about how the issue with some of the base Pathfinder ma- mass combat is that a lot of it feels very swingy based on the role of a single D twenty. Correct? Remember yeah. this? I think that I, I think that you, you're starting to the right point where you were like one D eight, one D twelve is badish to have like two D eight, three D twelve. I mm. still think those curves are a little bit too um they're a little bit too too wide. Um, wow, really? I think so I've, I I don't know if this is the final thing, but I think a good start to kind of, like, screwing with the system a little bit, is switching the number of dice with the face of the dice on almost all case, right? Like, switch 48 to 84, switch 4012 to 12d4, switch, uh, you can leave 86 where it is. I think more dice on smaller faces, it puts the, the, the middle of that curve a lot more consistent, and I think that that lets you kind of, like, ignore the swinginess issue. I might be over over anticipating the problems here, but like I think that like set like four D twelve swings a little bit too much to uh especially with kind of like the armor values. Maybe if the armor values are tweaked because you said you were thinking about switching that system. I really like,
1: you know honestly I really don't know how I feel like I'm going to change the armor system, but I definitely want to do a change.
0: And and you know, maybe twelve D four isn't the right solution, but like I think I definitely think more smaller faces is a it, it makes the, the the encounters a little bit more consistent even on on, on your end too. Like the, the way this plays out in ba- base Pathfinder is eventually the dam- like very quickly the base damage die of a weapon gets overwhelmed by the static modifiers, and so the variance there is very low on on, wep- on weapons in in, in in the base game. Right. Um, and I think that well that's that's you know not great all the time. I think that leads to weapons being samey and there's some issues that we could talk about all day with like with, with with the weapons in Pathfinder.
1: I actually do have a lot of issues with that. But yeah, yeah.
0: Um I think that cent- like s- keeping that value a little bit more centralized than you have it now might be a good idea.
1: Hmm, how do I feel about that? Cuz I do think, you know, like I do think variance is good to a certain extent, right? Like I want I want you to have you know like I want you to roll uh, a 9, 6, 10, 7 turn on d, D12s, d and, like, you're above the curve, you're doing a bunch of damage, and that feels good. You know what I mean? Like, when you yeah. roll really well. Um, and I think that gets – I think that effect gets diluted uh, uh, to a certain extent, right? It's harder to kind of make – if I have oh, – if I'm exactly. looking at 12D6, it's harder to kind of, like, make out whether or not I'm ahead or uh, below my curve, so to speak. Um,
0: Um, exactly, that's kind of also, like, the point, it's to make, it's to bring the, it's to bring the damage curve in, and, and peak it more around the, the middle values, um, to make, to make the damage a little bit more consistent, and make, make combats kind of a little bit more predictable for design purposes, if that makes sense, like, it feels bad when you lose because of bad dice rolls, um, and... If if it's too bad, like I think it is in the base Pathfinder Math Combat System, it feels uninteresting to win on very good dice rolls. Um, I think I think that like I mean, I'm like I said, I might, I might be going a little bit extreme by saying flip the dice, um, but I, I think that you, like keeping it a little bit closer than you have this is also something that could bear itself out in playtest. Um, I mean, I think, another, initial... I think another,
1: I think another way to handle this, hypothetically speaking, is to pump HP values, right? If we if we pump HP values a bunch and then pump the base dice, you know, we still we're still sitting at sixty twelve or whatever, but sixty twelve versus one hundred eighty HP is kind of a different, yeah, set of math. Maybe
0: it, I it wonder, is. I
1: wonder if that's you know that's kind of like too far, right?
0: Uh, um, the the danger there is that if you happen to get a couple of bad rolls. Then like the comic kind of slogs on, um, yeah. and like so something I learned very very well is, that, is in part of trying to balance my, my regular games for my players. I at one point just like straight up like tripled the h the max HP for an enemy, and what it was was it's just a slog, um, and that wasn't that wasn't great, um, and I think that that's the kind of danger that like well then just pump the pump the HP more territory kind of gets into. Is that like, it's it's not fun anymore after a little while? Um, how how many turns do you envision these combats taking?
1: I don't think that they should be super long, um, but it should be kind of its own. You know, like it could sh- it should be like its own session, should be its own kind of. Thing.
0: Sure, sure. I, I'm uh, talking less about um, I, time to and p- hours relative
1: I, relative to base Pathfinder. I think that you know it's probably at like a one point two, you know, like hundred twenty five percent. Faster, I guess, if that makes sense, right? I think that in general, these uh, if the system is streamlined in a way that Bates Pathfinder is not such that the hypothetical players will be quicker about their turns um, than they would otherwise be in Bates Pathfinder.
0: Sorry, this is a slightly different question than that, although that, that's good to know. I'm, I'm saying, how many turns do you think a combat should last? This, the big thing being here that, like, like, Warhammer's, like, what, like, four or five turns for each side? Um, and when I read that the first time, I was like, what the fuck? Um, and then, but when I played it out, it actually works very well. How how many rounds do you, ex- do you expect these combats to last?
1: I didn't actually know about that from for Warhammer, but I guess you're kind of right. I didn't really think about it in those, in those kinds of terms. Um, yeah, I mean, I think of them taking, like, a, you know, I don't know how much a normal combat feels like it takes um I, like a normal pathfinder combat yeah that's
0: true i think i think they also take less rounds than than you might think looking back yeah. on it.
1: Because it's one of those things where it's like, you know, in my head, if I'm trying, you know, I just kind of like don't have like the wherewithal to make these simulations work in my head, because like, in my head, I look at it and I say, well, you know, Centurions do 4d12 damage, right? You know, regular, that's 6.5 average damage dice times 4, obviously is 26. So 26 damage per hit on a Centurion is gonna take a bunch, you know, that's gonna take a couple of turns, but like focus fire also makes like big differences, and like the flanks make big Differences, right if i if i slam you know cavalry into a flank right if i if i slam cavalry into a flank even if i don't get a super great charge off even if i get 48 well it's that's 8d8 damage right plus all of this armor piercing damage times 1.5 right yeah that could totally decimate a group of you know kind of whatever and if you couple that with a you know like with one or two hits from some marksmen, one or two hits from, you know, like a skirmisher kind of thing. Oh, that's brutal. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I can really answer that question outside of play tests, but I guess, I guess, I don't know. I think somewhere between like six and nine turns.
0: Okay. I think, I think that matches, I think base pathfinder. I think that's about right. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially because I think that also I guess another part of this is is part of why Warhammer takes so long, given its relatively short number of turns. How many average units do you expect to be on the battlefield?
1: Oh, not that many. Uh, in my mind, armies are kind of like six or less. Okay, you shouldn't have you shouldn't have a group of like twelve units facing off a group of like twelve units, right?
0: Okay, um, that makes sense. Uh,
1: but you know, I mean, also, also like kind of coupled with that. Um, See, so also kind of coupled with that is, uh, like, like, an expectation. I haven't found a great way to systemize this. I kind of want there to be, like, a morale check um, where you can chain route people, kind of like in Total War Warhammer, where it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if the army loses half its units, it's now suffering deep combat wounds so that combat doesn't drag because you have – you know, because this one unit of missiles – you know, this one unit of marksmen are un fucking breakable, and you've routed the rest of the army. But you have to figure out a way to actually chase down these missile units, kind of thing. Like, I don't want to get into situations like that. I kind of hypothetically think that you know, like, you know, if you break if you break lo- the lines, uh, or if you get these good power flanks off, and you once you know, in a, in a in an army of like, let's say we pump those numbers to eight. Well, in an army of eight units, you really only have to fully defeat four of them in order for the rest of the army to kind of, like, route on its own. You're right. Uh, I haven't really thought of a good system for how to make that work. Um, but I think that – I like, I think the system is compelling when you are actively fighting kind of like an equal adversary um, and that it it'll get, it, it'll get super boring super quickly once you hit that point of like i've broken the enemy army and now it's just you know now we're just you know spending 45 minutes cleaning up the remains i want to kill that time as much as possible
0: um yeah no that i i can't think of i don't have any ideas off the top of my head on how to solve it, but that doesn't seem to be the right thing to do to kind of like you know, uh, this is just... When you've won, you've won.
1: Yeah, this is just kind of like an off-the-cuff off, off the cuff thought about it, but maybe morale is a good replacement for, like, armor and armor-piercing, right? Where, like, you have... Like, let's say, let's say instead of armor and armor-piercing, everybody just has, like, a base morale score, right? And when you're at high morale, you have a little bit of DR, right? And a little bit of extra static damage, right? So let's say high morale plus 8, right? Um, and so as units on the battlefield get killed, my morale drops from, you know, from eight to five to two to negative, whatever, maybe there's a better, there's probably a better scale in the, in this, but you know, it's what, so it's one of those things where it's like, um, all of a sudden, I don't know. How do you feel about something like that? This is just kind of an off
0: the cuff. Uh, so, idea. so, so the thing that occurred to me immediately was, is as you're kind of talking about this, is that you, if you are clearly winning a fight, you want this to happen. But I also think you don't want like morale to break if things are even, right? Like, if like if the battle is very evenly matched and it's a slugfest down to the last unit, I think that that's fine. So, like, you know, if it's like one unit on one, like if it comes down to one unit versus one unit, I think that's all right. Um, I think if you're right. If it's like eight versus one, then yeah, that that you shouldn't have to chase the yeah, cavalry unit that. like sprinting around the field. So maybe something that's like, um, you know, units have a maybe a base morale value or or something. Maybe that's like a, a tertiary stat that you can modify with 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 skills or whatever. But having it modified based on the difference in number of units on the field. Or something like that, right? Um, instead
1: of just flat, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Like, or you know, I mean, well, to be honest, that's kind of a self-correcting system in, in its own way, uh, because if both sides suffer from morale, right, uh, or like, let's say, let's say it's eight unit armies facing off, right? Right. Um, each one gets plus twelve, and they lose three for each unit in the army that routes kind of thing right um in the super you know like the net of if i if i as my eight route two or three things the net is six or nine right um but if i also if i get some of my units routed in that process right if i lose you know if i lose two or three units now i'm down to six now now i he's down to two six right or to three or whatever. But I'm also losing morale, and I'm also dropping down to, to, to kind of three or whatever. Um, so that's kind of a, a weirdly self-correcting system in, like, the, the situation of each side uses one, one unit after another. The bonuses are hypothetically kind of, like, equal or whatever. I don't know, maybe morale is, like, maybe it's better to have morale be, like, a DC kind of thing. Uh, I actually think that this might be a great idea, where, like, you kind of have morale be a flat DC for each, you know, for, like, the units or whatever. And that allows you to interact with that in in an interesting way, like, cavalry charges can do extra morale damage, where you can force the unit to break with super devastating charges, even if they still are, even if they still technically have, like, HP on the field. Maybe there's something in that. Um... I don't know.
0: Yeah. Um, maybe. I don't even know.
1: Yeah, I really don't know. That's, uh, it, it's it's a very off-the-cuff, uh, thought that I haven't kind of, like, worked through yet.
0: Um, so, um, you, you're talking about the Calvary Church. It actually brings me back to something I was thinking about uh, a bunch, which was, uh, Cal, uh so the the calvary charge um you've got some references to this kind of engagement mechanic which i don't think you ever spell out anywhere but i assume that it's like if somebody's either threatening you you can't like do an about face you can't like run away or whatever oh
1: yeah that, that kind of thing yeah uh i don't actually think that i it, so full disclosure i actually had a different set of rules that had ridiculously complicated mechanics along those lines uh so i think that there's probably some vestigial parts that are referencing a mechanic that i actually deleted because it's kind of nuts um like the the um uh well actually i kind of can't see it off hand. But yes, there there was an old mechanic about engagement that made it that made disengaging from combat incredibly painful.
0: Yeah, so so it's so the, the one on the, the big one that is attracting my attention is about face. Uh if a unit is engaged in combat it cannot about face. Um can is, is that still true? Or like what what what's your what's your vision for those things. oh yeah
1: yeah yeah. that's still true because engaged in combat in that in that scenario is just like you know like it's fighting another unit on kind of whatever the, that's the, that, so you, you can't to, you can't you need run. to
0: find what that means
1: yeah that's fair um the the point the point is is you can't about face and forward march away you have to use that retreat action which is dangerous because it drops your armor to zero um and you have to put full. Movie. You can. You can't. You can't do. Uh, like retreats are a really dedicated action. If that makes sense, right? Like you have to commit to that retreat. really okay. Hard, um, and it should be a threat when you when you're retreating from combat. Sure. Like. Um, so like yeah, if you're losing the combat, maybe it makes sense to kind of cut and run. But you're going to get shredded to pieces for doing that kind of thing. Cavalry uh, kind of ignore this because they don't take that opportunity damage, right? Um, which is oh. kind of the point. Cavalry need to move in and out of combat. You know, like cavalry, right. See, they is, make th- their charge and then they leave. So it doesn't matter that their armor can be zero for that. It doesn't matter. They're not procking opportunity attacks. They can retreat for free, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, Okay, uh, see, see, this with them too
0: much. this this is this was exactly why I I, I brought it up, um, because um, because it seems like kind of cavalry kind of slam face first into somebody with their nice charge attack, and then they kind of have to stick there or else get fucked, um, which I don't think is 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 great. I think ideally the cavalry is kind of ping ponging between distant targets, um, getting their charges off as frequently as possible
1: um so the um so kind of that's how that's how like disengage works right but cavalry were kind you know i don't, I don't know if this is Mark. cavalry are are meant to ignore that for the most part right if i'm cavalry something i can do is if i set up my charge on a unit when it cycles to my next turn, I can retreat the maximum distance, not take any damage because I don't proc opportunity attacks, um, and then set up for my next turn of, uh, and then and then set up for my next turn where I make my movement back forward and I hit with my charge again. Does that make sense?
0: So you can't. You, I so see what you're you can't saying, proc- but I charge think
1: every single turn, right? But because you can you have can't. best
0: charge sprocket every other turn, right? And I That's think that the best makes case scenario. I think that makes them extremely weak, really, um, because you are only doing half damage. Like you, or rather, you are doing maybe like you don't get any advantage from it. Maybe you could argue the mobility, but like the cavalry doesn't do super high damage in the first place because you're supposed to. Uh, add these charges onto it and so you are only attacking every other round whereas like your centurions are attacking every round right that's over two round o- over four rounds the centurion has done 16d12 damage and your your cavalry has done uh you know 48 even if you get if you get a full charge that's 10 10d 10
1: Wait, I mean, sorry. The Centurion does sixteen d twelve over two turns. Over four turns. Oh, over four turns. Uh, I just
0: I was just repeating it. Or or Fair over enough. two turns. Like sure. you know, that's eight d twelve damage, and then over over two turns, the cavalry's done
1: eight at best twelve th- d eight
0: damage. Yeah, and that's like not one, not guaranteed. Two, definitely not guaranteed. If someone's trying to like chase down your cavalry, mm-hmm. and and essentially, it's also like. It's an action that you have, like you, the your cavalry isn't going to get their their attack action on every other turn, right? They, they've they've automatically got halved action economy, um, which is kind of kind of ties back into like.
1: Wait, sorry, I'm now I'm confused. What do you mean by halved action economy?
0: So if the if the if the pattern for, uh, for cavalry is move is 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 charge in and retreat. Every other turn, they're using their retreat action and presumably not attacking anybody on that turn. So they
1: um, no, that's actually not the case. If you think about it, this is what happens, right? Um, I I'm I'm cavalry. I charge in, right? I charge in full, move forward. I get sixty, uh, I get sixty-eight extra damage plus six armor piercing. Do a ton of damage, right? Then I take damage, right? Because it cycles the enemy turns. Then it passes back to my turn. On my turn, as an attack action, I make a basic attack, forty-eight damage plus five armor piercing, whatever, and then I retreat, right? And then it cycles back to my turn again, and I charge in okay, and it. Okay, yeah. Huh. Do you see what I'm saying? Because you can, you can. Otherwise, you're wasting your attack action.
0: Right, right. No, no. And that's that's. I for whatever reason I thought retreat had some some stipulation on it. About how how it does, uh, does it? It doesn't. Uh, I it may, doesn't, have, may doesn't. have written that, but it, it doesn't. That was okay. just me. There's me kind of like filling in things from like other systems I've seen. Um, so I I apologize for that. Um,
1: yeah, I mean because you know that, that is very much how it's kind of supposed to work for cavalry, right? They have a 150 percent power attack right on one turn okay and then the next turn they do a 75 first you know like and so you know they're doing a lot of damage or whatever but like the big burst damage is really what i like from cavalry uh and what i think is makes them uh also i think you know like setting up you know like the the world in which the cavalry can do that over and over again i think is kind of a rarer one but it is one that you should kind of reward with more okay uh, like dps so to speak all right. because, the, because the other thing that you have to remember on, on that, too, is that the cavalry is taking less damage from the unit it's engaged with. Because even if that unit tries to chase the cavalry down, right, like, all that does is reduce the – you know, you, I can chase that cavalry down and I can brace, right? But I'm not actually doing any damage back to the cavalry. Right. Um, and so, you know, like, the, the cavalry's not – the cavalry only takes one attack for every two attacks they deal under this system. If that
0: makes sense. Okay, so quick question. How does yeah. retreat work? Like, do you, do you like, straight up back up? Like, you spend, you you, you get one-to-one movement backwards. How do, how do I, how do I re- Yeah. Unit, unit enters a full retreat. Its arm value is zero. Retreating, we move, units, we move, it's one square per movement point spent on this ability.
1: You know, I actually, well, so in my mind, you just move Back in a straight line, and you can't turn, you can't shift. But you're you're facing, you That's actually not, that's that's what's not it. Yeah, but you're facing.
0: um, The way you uh, started?
1: Yeah. Well, because, so what it, it, in my mind, what a treat kind of symbolizes, right, is you pull all of your dudes out of combat, and then you're in disarray. This is why your armor drops to zero. And all of the opportunity attacks you proc right along the way, you're going to take a bunch of damage from that because armor's armor's zero or whatever. But then you get to the end of the retreat, you reform your lines, and they're. They're the, they're the lines that you had before, right? Your front line is still in the same. Your front line, if it was facing north before, is still facing north. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I still th- like, it feels like, like, I, th- I think it works okay for the cavalry specifically, but I think in kind of like a, a greater sense, it's kind of like you're giving them one-to-one movement for retreat, which doesn't feel exactly right. Um, so the the uh,
1: the thing that I'm actually I didn't actually include in this, which I should say, is that they only go in a straight line. You can retreat people into cor- you can force people into corners so they can't retreat out. Sure. In, essentially by saying, but you know if I if I put a unit behind you and you try and retreat, you just hit that unit.
0: Sure, and 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 like so, like like maybe it's okay for the for for the cavalry because the cavalry is a special case. But I think in the general case, like like. Not, like, not letting like like essentially letting somebody like uh get the better like like I feel, I feel like retreating one to one one to one on movement points gives an advantage to that retreat. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble kind of ar- articulating what I mean, but it feels like you know you retreat and that you retreat and you can retreat your full distance. That means that if somebody wants to push to follow you, they have to follow you. Their full distance. Because the majority of units have four square movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's th- that something there feels wrong. Um that like you can you can kind of like pull pe like like that that you get to essentially you have um full flexibility in all directions, if that makes sense. Like, like it feels like the armies will move more will more often move like Tetris blocks, like there doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive to ever turn, assuming the battle lines start out facing each other.
1: Uh, to get flanks and to get backline shots, but sure.
0: Like, so I think that's theoretically true, but I don't think that that's practically true. Like, I think it's hard to maneuver around people in the first place, mm-hmm. um, given the movement system, and so I think there'll be a lot of head-on, head-on fights, especially because the the, the turning cost is is, is fairly steep.
1: How do I feel about that? Yeah, I guess I I guess I see where you're coming from. Um, to be honest, it's – yeah. Well, because like – so from my perspective, um, let's say I'm a unit of marksmen and I retreat my full four units, every single unit in the game – can just follow up with that and get their attack off anyway on the next round, right? Um, and then you have some units like skirmishers who can hypothetically do that and more because they have more movement points, right? Like maybe the skirmisher you know figures out some way to take advantage of a flank because they have that extra movement point and can you know um, kind of shift or pop it into, see, into some way or whatever. Uh,
0: um, with 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 one or even two unit points, you or like so. The difference between a, a, a cavalry and and the, slow, you know, cavalry is fastest at six. Are, <coughs> excuse me. Marksmen are slowest at, or marksmen in many other units are slowest at four. A cavalry can't get a flank on a fully retreating marksman, right? They have to move all the way up and then, like, then maybe shift. And then on the next turn, maybe they can turn, but then their flank is exposed. Um, Maybe not against marksmen because they're marksmen, but against, like, a a, a a a phalanx uh, of sentinels. Um, they kind of expose their side. Like in order to take to start flanking someone, you have to expose your your flank, and that kind of makes it so that, um, I think you want to face each other more. Like I I think in practice it'll play out that like you rarely ever see flank attacks, and maybe that's maybe that's a good thing. But I, I just I just don't see a lot of well,
1: so. The system is built uh, to not allow you or to not incentivize you I guess to try and find flanks in head- to head combat right okay if I, if i'm if I'm a group of Centurions and I'm a group of uh, sentinels it's way better. For me to just fight that group of sentinels head to head than it is for me to try and find a flank because those shifts or whatever are gonna block. Proc- right. first of all i mean first of all sentinels are amazing at these opportunity attacks right uh, but second of all right you know like you're taking opportunity damage if you try and shift and turn to hit a flank which i don't think is worth it for basically anybody the idea for flanks uh and for backline stuff for me is kind of that like grander maneuver of i'm i'm a unit of cavalry and i haven't engaged any unit yet so i'm going to circle around. Around entirely and then charge into the back line, right? Or even if I'm a unit of skirmishers, I do that. Um, uh, and that the kind of other units don't necessarily get there. Uh, like, you know, interestingly enough, right? Like, there's a unit, uh, there's a specific upgrade that you can get for what are they, marksmen, uh, that allows marksmen to take advantage of flanks, which they normally can't. Where, where is it? Yeah, so gunslinger marksmen, uh, you know, they can. Um,
0: they can flank, yeah. They can. Uh,
1: they can wait wait they can dead eye to get oh, flank, oh yeah you know. okay yeah so yeah they under the effects of the dead eye they get the ability to flank basically uh, and that's that's you know that's kind of intentional right um where you know the the be- the way that you use these kind of gunslinger marksmen is you keep them back um and swing them around and then you know hit them into the enemy back line and they get a bunch you know they get a bunch of armor a little bit of hp and range and stuff to kind of compensate for being a little bit more uh uh, not having the same kind of safety and range. Uh,
0: I also don't think gunslingers ever get used because you can't put a tank in front of them.
1: Yeah, it's true. I don't know. It's one of those. I have a. I have a tough time with it because it, it, you know gunslingers work like gun gun units do in Warhammer, um, where if you obstruct them, they should be fucked. I think gunslingers hypothetically need to do more damage or, or something like that in order to be yeah. super useful.
0: Yeah. um... So, the the only other thing I wanted to bring up, kind of, since we're, we're winding towards the end of our usual duration, um, is uh, to kind of wind it back to the Calvary thing, is that the only problem I guess I have at this point with the Calvary is that kind of, like, the visual of Calvary ramming headfirst into something and then backing up and ramming again doesn't feel like Calvary to me, right? That feels like a car driving into, a into a, like, a post. Um <laughs> Like at least in my mind, cavalry is is you know the way the way a cavalry skirmish kind of works is like they 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 run into you and they kind of like run past you and then circle around again and kind of like nip at your flanks. At least at least the the more nimble cavalry type of units, Um, and I don't think any type like any cavalry kind of like you know run straight forced into you and then like says like time to put reverse gear on my horse and reverse it up and then like trying to ram forward again um and you know that that's just a flavor thing more than it's, like a mechanics complaint but but it but it's i don't know it, it,
1: it you know uh the interesting thing about that is that you know i almost kind of thought the same thing uh, but in playing total war warhammer i and understanding the stats do you know what charge cycling is
0: no i I'm well so ca-
1: so cavalry i i didn't know this at first right i thought cavalry were just you know i well uh, it, so This is also because of how I use cavalry a lot of the times in these games. Um, Generally speaking, right, cavalry have, you know, okay melee stats to good melee stats, but they have really high speed um, and they have a huge charge bonus, right? And the way a charge bonus works in Total War is, you know, if you hit someone while charging, right, like at full speed, you get the charge bonus to your melee attack. Um, and so it makes your melee attack you like, super devastating, but it only lasts you know, like 20 or thirty seconds kind of thing. And so the proper way to use most cavalry in in total war games is you slam your cavalry into somebody, right, you wait it out for the charge bonus to kind of wear off, and then you pull them back and you do it again. Uh, and that's called charge cycling and it's because uh, cavalry specifically have a very easy time disengaging with melee units, right. Um, most units you it's tough to pull them out of melee combat, but cavalry have a very easy time because their speed is so high or whatever.
0: Um, right, but so so that's that's that is the most effective way to use them, but is that is that like the right thing to do or is that just like kind of like a consequence of the system that isn't particularly good?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of th- feel like that is sort of the right. Thing to do to a certain extent. I I agree with you, but I don't think there's a great way to kind of systemize. Like, run through someone um, because what do you get in that situation? Right? Do you run through them into your own lines? Do you charge from behind your own lines? I don't really think that that works super well either. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I I guess that's a good point.
1: Um, And and by the way, you know, like I also think that that is supported. That's just kind of like the skirmisher's job. Uh, yeah, I because see they that. can move through units. That's like, that's a little bit of what I like want them to do.
0: All right. Um, so one one last quick question for you. Sure. Because um, this just occurred to me. Um, you, uh, so engaged units can't about face. Does that mean that somebody that's been hit in the back can't turn around and defend themselves?
1: Oh yeah, you get fucked. That's the point. Okay. Uh, you if you get surrounded like that, you're just dead meat.
0: I mean, I mean, it's not sur- surrounded.
1: Or, well, I mean, you know, you, so. Oh, yeah. so, so what
0: you're envisioning is that you, if you get hit in the back, you step forward, disengage, take the attack of opportunity, and then turn around? Uh, wait. I'm masking, I'm Like,
1: oh, oh, so, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. Uh, but so the, 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 the way, the reason about face works that way is if you get hit, like, let's say I maneuver it so that, you know, my sentinels have you in front, and then I hit you in back with a unit of cavalry. You can't run away from that, right? right. You, you can, The only thing you can do is... Um Disengage and take opportunity attacks from both of these guys, and then shift out to one side or, or another, which isn't going to get you, you know, like which is barely going to get you anywhere, um, kind of thing. When you get surrounded like that, you know, like yeah, you should get you should get destroyed. Though to be honest, now that I think about that, that was the reason that I made the decision. But now that I actually think about that, it kind of doesn't matter because even if you could about face, you're still backlined against somebody. So uh,
0: if if you're one unit deep, yeah, yeah,
1: um, so you know i didn't really think about that yeah and that that's uh, i guess that's kind of like the other piece of it is that you can like back you put units back to back to protect their back yeah, lines yeah. in those kind of like super turtly formations which are really not that effective but i
0: love them i think they're cool yeah um, I think we're gonna need some playtest to kind of work out the kinks, but I yeah I, think I
1: haven't I yeah I th- I wanted like almost I want to schedule one, uh, but uh, I'm really afraid that I'm gonna schedule this playtest and because of the nature of playtest right like the system's gonna be broken and it's gonna be just like a complete shit show and fucked and people are gonna almost use that as like an excuse to not do mass combat which I would hate you know what yeah, I mean like yeah, I, this I've, idea that like I think um, a
0: playtest might just be you and me.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> that might be that might be a fair way to uh, that might be a fair way to adjudicate it.
0: Um, but yeah, I think that's about all we have time for. We're running a little bit long. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before we no, close it I don't out? No,
1: really I don't really have anything else to uh, to pimp this week. Uh,
0: all right. Uh, um, well, if you want to tell us what you think of this system, you can uh, email us at somederpsplaygames at gmail dot com. You can um, uh, comment on our SoundCloud. You can watch us on Twitch at twitch.tv tv slash games. You can follow us on Twitter and fan us on Facebook and watch us on YouTube, and every all the things that you want to do. Um, and uh, am I forgetting anything, buddy?
1: No, I think that's uh, that's basically covered it. Um, so yeah, I uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Yeah.
0: Uh, until next time, dear until listeners. Until
1: next time.